We're going to start a little more locally, though. We're going to start in our own backyard in Surrey. Uh, one of the councillors on the very fractured Surrey Council is accusing the mayor of, well, uh, avoiding transparency in public discussion by uh, pushing through a lot of city business in in-camera meetings. And in-camera is an old, old Latin phrase, which means basically in private or in confidence. Linda, Linda Annis is one of the members of Surrey City Council here today to talk about in-camera meetings and the mayor. Linda, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Sterling. Thanks for having me again today. Well, it's good to have you on. Now, the in-camera, I did define, I actually looked it up to make sure I had a proper definition. It basically means private as in closed to everybody but those who are authorized to be there. So when typically would any city council, Linda, use the in-camera format versus the open meeting? Well, things around, you know, senior management, you know, the higher senior management or things like that, or, um, you know, that would be a, a prime example or of public safety issues, things around that. But uh, what I would like to say is the mayor ran on saying that he was going to have an open and transparent uh, city hall. And clearly that is not happening. We're having far too many in-camera sessions, things that don't belong in there. But once uh, council Uh, convenes an in-camera session, we're all muzzled and we can't disclose anything that has happened in there. Well, let's talk about that for a second, because that's just awfully darn convenient for the person who declared the session to be in-camera in the first place. And is that an arbitrary decision? Once council convenes, and of course, you're not all in the same room anymore either, are you? Now some of you are appearing uh, virtually uh, by via internet and so on. But is it up to the mayor? Is it his discretion, councillor? to say, well, okay, now that we're all together, this is private. This is an in-camera meeting without any advance notice. He is, uh, well, we do have scheduled in-camera meetings, uh, usually before uh, a council meeting, so that if there are any issues that need to be discovered, discussed, I should say, the agenda is put out there, we're aware of what it is. But what the mayor has a habit of doing is adding additional items once the meeting has been uh, uh, set and we're already in the in-camera meeting. So two problems with that. First of all, we're muzzled with it and also we're not prepared for the discussion either. We're oftentimes caught off guard uh, because we don't have the materials for it. We aren't aware that this is going to be discussed. It's just not good government. We, we are aware at the federal level, Linda, of something called cabinet confidentiality in which if you are a member of the federal or even provincial cabinet, those closed meetings are very private and confidentiality rules prohibit you from discussing them with anyone except your cabinet colleagues. Uh, The notion of a city councillor being muzzled uh, and unable to discuss the contents of meetings, uh, it it seems to flow along the same guidelines as cabinet confidentiality, but you're not at either the federal or provincial level. Does this happen often? It happens uh, far, far too often. Certainly, uh, every time, every other Monday when we have a council meeting, we have an in-camera meeting as well. Uh, it is not uh, good uh, practice. Good government is transparent government, and uh, we need to be working towards that. We need to be an open and transparent uh, uh, city uh, so that people are aware of what's going on. They're aware of the issues. They're aware of how uh, city council is handling them. Uh, it was very, very fortunate, uh, gosh, uh, about Three or four months ago, we passed um, a code of conduct, which 
unfortunately, even further muzzles us now because we don't have our ethics commissioner, which we voted on over a year and a half ago to arbitrate some of these things. Right. That, that position still hasn't been filled. And, uh, you know, it, we just can't speak out about uh, many things that we should be speaking out about. OK, let me ask you this, given the fact that you, I know you're muzzled. So let me just ask you in a, in a general sort of way, are the items that you say are brought up at the last minute or slid into these uh, scheduled in-camera sessions issues that would benefit from the uh, public discussion process, you say you've been surprised by some of the items that have been brought up. Are they then what we would generally consider to be controversial? Absolutely. Oftentimes there's controversial things that are brought up in there, things that, you know, I think the mayor and the Safe Story Coalition just want to slip on through. Uh, I obviously can't speak to any items because again i'm not allowed to speak about what Mm -hmm. happens in camera right okay so let's talk about the ethics commissioner you said this notion was brought forward well over a year ago Uh, a committee was struck to create a a search maybe hire a headhunter firm that kind of thing is usually what cities do when they need to hire uh, new executives and, and new positions and yet not a great deal has happened since so are we basically treading water here Absolutely. So when we made the decision uh, to hire an ethics commissioner and there was a committee put forward, uh, the uh, recommendation was from our from the non-Safe Surrey Coalition members, uh, why don't one of us sit on the committee and one from uh, the Safe Surrey Coalition? Of course, um, that was vetoed and uh, the committee now consists only of Safe Surrey uh, Coalition members on that committee. So there you go. Okay, so the uh, ethics commissioner is still very much up in the air. Is there any indication whatsoever that this individual will be hired prior to the next municipal election even? Well, I sure hope so, but I've seen nothing. I'm not aware of what the status of this is. Uh, You know, there's not been updates on it, so I have no idea when the intention is to hire this individual. Okay, I know you're busy and I know you have to run. Final question to you, Councillor, and that's very simple. What do voters do who object to this secrecy program? Well, I think voters need to do a couple of things. Next time, they need to make sure that they get out to the polls. We had very low voter turnout in Surrey last time. It's often problematic for municipal elections. People don't realize how much and how important it is that they vote in their municipalities. A lot of the things that affect you on a very day-to-day life, you know, things like policing, your sewer, your taxes, um, you know, your water, all of that is, you know, decisions that are made through the city. So I absolutely urge everyone, not just in Surrey, but throughout uh, uh, British Columbia to get out and vote. And, you know, we live in a free democratic society, and it's very important that we exercise the opportunity and the right that we have to vote. Councillor Linda Ennis, thanks very much for this. Good to talk to you again. Say hi to George Garrett from all of us down here at CKNW. And we'll talk again. I love it. Thank you very much. Nice to have you with us this Thursday afternoon. Sterling Fox sitting in for Jill Bennett. It is uh, time to check in with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. With seven out of ten business owners across our country worried that customers won't come back and many of them still struggling to pay their bills, the Canadian Federation of Independent Business has a new campaign designed to amplify actions to support local businesses. And even if you're not a business owner, you can get in on this too. I just uh, joined up myself. Join. Uh, us from the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses Policy Analyst, Muriel Pratzer. Muriel, good afternoon. Welcome to the program. 
Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having CFIB on today. Well, it's great to have you with us. And uh, this uh, this new program that you've got is uh, you've established a new website, and uh, we'll talk about that in a second. But you, the beginning of, of the conversation has to include this. Almost half of Canadians, Muriel, know a business that has closed permanently due to COVID-19. Almost half of us know of some enterprise that will not, or probably has already gone out of business or will not ultimately make the cut. Of that group, eight out of 10 of us say, we wish we could do more. So knowing that that sentiment is there, we don't like the idea of watching enterprises literally disappear before our eyes. You've come up with a a bit of a program that's called Small Business Every Day. Tell us about it. That's correct. So you've listed some some shocking data here. It's really saddening to think about the number, the sheer amount of small businesses who are suffering so desperately during these times. It's been challenging for all of us, and especially so for small businesses. So to help promote the idea of shopping locally and encouraging Canadians across the country to engage and support small businesses, CFIB has launched our new campaign, Small Business Every Day. Um, If you're a consumer, an individual, you can check it out at smallbusinesseveryday.ca, and you'll find a list of chat challenges and ways that you can help support local businesses. These are things that are as simple as writing an online review of your favorite local business or perhaps on your next coffee break to try a new local cafe that's popped up in your area. There's so many benefits to shopping local, and we do need to remind ourselves that uh, these businesses on the best of days operate on such razor-thin margins, and having had such a hit during these times, they really need our support to survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, joined, I went to a smallbusinesseveryday.ca, and the first thing you encounter is that several thousand individuals and businesses have taken up this challenge, and you get two options. I'm a small business owner, or I'm a small business supporter. I'm a supporter, so I click that button, and then it issues you a series of challenges. And my first challenge uh, that popped up for me is uh, take a picture of your favorite local business or product, Uh, from it and share that picture online. And once you do that, you click on give me another challenge and off you go. So the idea is to get people who want to be involved, Muriel, actually involved in doing stuff. Absolutely. You know, there's so many ways we can support our local businesses that you might not think of just like writing an online review of your favorite business. This really helps them get their name out there and sharing what businesses you love with your social circle, whether that's in person with your friends or more like online, given the situation that we're faced with right now and your social outlets. It's such a great way to get out the good word of the businesses that you love visiting. And like I said, there's so many benefits of shopping local. I'll quote some data here from Loco BC, which is another uh, business organization in the province. Okay. They, they found that 63 cents of every dollar gets circulated back into our local economies when you shop at a local business. Okay, that's, that's, uh, that's a significant number, isn't it? Exactly. So I think that one of the most empowering ways you can spend your money is at a local business because that 
dollar gets reinvested into your community. This is our family, our friends, our neighbors. This having our our money recirculated within our local economies has such a positive benefit and makes us all better off at the end of the day. And there's so many great campaigns that you can help support small businesses. And that's why CFIB is launching our own small business every day to help uh, consumers find ways that they can support local businesses yeah. in their communities. Well, exactly. And, and you, you make the point, uh, too, that, uh, you know, it, it's small. Uh, it, the, it, it's uh, customers are critical to business survival, but and, and, and so are employees. And I want to talk about employees with you in a couple of minutes. But first, I want to talk to you about those business operators, Muriel, who are participating and who are members of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. And as you talk to them, you're a policy analyst, so you pay a lot of attention to details. And you talked about already razor-thin margins. As you speak to and communicate with small business operators right across Canada, what are the common denominators, Muriel, in terms of the challenges they're facing to keep their heads above water? Well, really, small businesses are faced with a daily challenge of how do I keep my doors open and my lights on? We're hearing that small business owners across British Columbia are incredibly stressed, worried that their customers won't come back, and also having challenges with staffing difficulties, so having their employees come back to work. We're finding that half of businesses who are open are only partially open, so they're not seeing the revenues that they normally see. Um, In fact, only one in five are making usual revenues compared to this time last year. So the list of challenges small businesses face right now is massive, and most of them just trying to figure out on a daily basis how to keep their doors open. Yeah, I walked through Pacific Center Mall, which is downstairs uh, below our building here at Georgia and Granville, Muriel, in anticipation of this conversation, paying attention to what stores were open and closed and the ones that were open, how open? In other words, they're not, you just don't go strolling in anymore. There's someone at the door now. There's a sign at the door that says, you should do this, you should follow the arrows, you should do this, that, and the other thing. So really conducting day-to-day business, even getting people into the premises is, is a bit of a challenge. It's so different. You know, we've already recently entered phase three of British Columbia's reopening plan, and more and more businesses are able to open those doors. From our data, we find some good news that nearly all BC businesses have reopened. So while that's some good news, it's so true that, you know, half of them are only able to open at partial capacity. And what that means is that for a lot of employees, there's still not a job to return to. And for businesses, they're just not seeing the revenue coming in uh, that they're used to right now. And we're all faced with such difficult, challenging times right now. Uh, But it is a great reminder to ourselves to check out that local option uh, before we go online and see what's really in our neighborhoods and those unique products and services that our local businesses do offer us. Yeah, I noticed again with the signage and the, and the, the door person at so many of the businesses, Muriel, that, uh, you know, you talk about restaurants struggling to survive and the new rules giving them half a house, plus if they're lucky, a little more patio space for a few more seats. In terms of the business that isn't a hospitality oriented, but a service like a clothing store or something like that, they're essentially in the same situation, though. If they're only basically permitted half a house in terms of customer support at any given time, it becomes a real challenge, doesn't it? 
It certainly does. Uh, you know, WorkSafe BC has put out some industry-specific guidelines, and while we're so thankful to have those guidelines and be able to follow them, it's a lot of changes that need to be made, and business owners making sure they're following those directly. Like you've said, um, there's so many different uh, things we're seeing now with directional uh, laneways within yeah. businesses. You can only go this way mm-hmm. in the grocery store. Um, personal protective equipment, hand sanitizer pretty much at every corner. Um, it's a lot of new things and challenges for business. Owners. And it's also, a lot, it's also a lot of expense. You know, you look at the restaurants, they've had to put up all that plexiglass, and uh, the plexiglass is not limited to restaurants. I mean, you look around in pretty much every workplace, every enterprise around the cash desk and all of that, there's plexiglass now. That's all direct out-of-pocket expense that had to go up before the lock could be taken off the door. That's so true. While there are some federal uh, programs available for financing, uh, they're not open to everyone. And for a lot of small businesses, uh, this is coming right out of their pockets. Yep. In fact, we've we've heard from business owners in British Columbia, they've had to tap into uh, their personal savings or use their credit card to pay for expenses due to COVID-19. So the amount of additional costs they're faced with right now, uh, coupled with the fact they're not seeing the revenues uh, that would be normal for this time, is certainly a challenge. Muriel Pratzer is with us from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. She is a policy analyst with that organization. And Muriel, we're going to talk about employees getting them back to work. A bit of a chore for some employers across the country, specifically here in B.C. And in fact, we have have some some words here, some thoughts from uh, a a cafe owner, uh, Laura's Cafe uh, Corner in White Rock. Laura Cornelli is with us uh, with some thoughts about getting uh, the staff back. I am the chef now. <laughs> I am the bookkeeper. I am the dishwasher yeah, and the shopper, stocking. Yeah, it's it's been a lot because uh, I've been trying to reach out to some employees. I even asked one of my employees four times come back and he's like i make more money on serve well again it's uh, something that uh, muriel i'm sure you're hearing more of it this is laura again with just another thought on the same thing and that's what i hear that it's not safe but unfortunately, when you see the Instagram posts and the Facebook posts, it's hurtful, right? That they complain about my business, that it's not speaking up when you haven't even seen or have had a conversation with me to see what I've done. And spent about $1,000 on plexiglass, right? And stickers and signage, right? It's a lot. There's an, see, we were just talking about there, weren't we, Muriel? There's a woman who's just dropped 1000 bucks on plexiglass in a little corner cafe uh, right out of her pocket. Another way to not only make the customers, and this is what your new campaign, Small Business Every Day, is all about, but staff personnel feeling comfortable about coming back and feeling safe on the job. This is a concern, a practical concern. You can't blame an employee for being concerned about his or her workplace being a safe uh, place to go back to. But once the business is enterprise and you uh, and or enterprise is, is reopened, and Muriel, you talked about this already, the WorkSafe BC guidelines are quite rigorous. They have to be followed. There are no exceptions. You have to have a plan and you have to have it posted. So once all of those guidelines have been followed and all of the protocols have been observed and all the ducks are in a row, then all you need to do is open the doors and they'll come back to work. Except as Laura was saying, not always the case. And anecdotally, Muriel, you're in more in contact with business owners than I am. I'll bet you're hearing more than a few anecdotes about employees who have, quote, decided to take the summer off. 
Yeah, there's a list of concerns for small businesses right now, but this particular issue of having difficulty bringing back employees um, is one that we have been hearing from our membership. Uh, CFIB represents over 10,000 small and medium-sized businesses across the province here, and we've heard that about a third of them are having difficulties with staffing, so whether that's refusal to work, retention, or recalling those employees. So this is certainly something we're hearing on the ground. Uh, Myself, I was speaking to a business owner the other day um, in in British Columbia that said they were having trouble bringing back staff and having to work 80 hours a week themselves and just getting absolutely burned out. Sure. And that's the only other option. I mean, if you have to open the, you do have to open the business, either that or it's gone. So, okay, you open your doors and you're minus a few vital key components, as in staff members, it's maybe you and another family person. And you're right, uh, in order just to keep the doors open and the lights on, which is still a concern that you've identified earlier as being right up there, then you're going to have to do it pretty much by yourself to get the ball rolling, aren't you? Yeah, it's it's really difficult. You know, BC has already entered phase three and we have these work safe guidelines. These are guidelines that the provincial health officer has approved of, the government has approved of, and business owners are complying with them. You see those posters up there, you see the hand sanitizer, the plexiglass, the face masks. And that's all in place. And so it's extremely discouraging when um, employees have that opportunity to return to work, uh, but choose not to take advantage of that. We really need to remind ourselves of the intention of CERT, and that is to provide financial assistance to people who no longer have access to employment income due to COVID-19. It's so important that we have that incentive in place to get employees back at the job site, because this is such an important puzzle piece of the puzzle to, to get to economic recovery and it's a bridge it's not it's not an alternative and not a cash flow alternative it's merely a a bridging device uh almost out of time here smallbusinesseveryday.ca is the new website i encourage all of our listeners to check it out you don't have to be a small business owner there's a button for you too i used it i support small business Uh, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon muriel we appreciate your time and uh, very best of luck to you and all your members Thank you so much, Sterling, for having CFIB on. Always appreciate being here. Nice to have you with us this Thursday afternoon. It's Sterling Fox in for Jill Bennett. Here's a headline that captured our attention a few hours ago. Stimulus spending will not kickstart the economy will increase government deficits and debt. This is part of the findings from a report called Is Fiscal Stimulus an Effective Policy Response to a Recession? The One of the authors of whom is Tegan Hill, an economist with the Fraser Institute who joins us now. Tegan, good afternoon. Thanks for being with us. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Well, this is quite a quite a, a long look at stimulus spending. Talk to us a little bit about the, the 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 foundation of the report. How far back did you go, and and what was what was the focus of the stimulus spending? The entire two hundred and fifty billion and and counting package, or did you uh, circle around a specific area of stimulus spending? Great question. So I think there are two important points uh, to touch on before getting into. The report. The for, first is that it's important to understand that government spending up to this point has largely been to stabilize incomes um, and has not been stimulus spending. Okay. So CERB payments, for example, um, those are designed to stabilize the incomes of Canadians who lost their jobs or work hours due to the lockdown. Mm-hmm. So CERB wouldn't be considered part of a stimulus package. 
Um, what we're talking about here is additional government spending that we expect in the coming months and that there have been some announcements um, for upcoming spending that would be in an effort to kickstart the economy now that those uh, the provincial and federal economy is kind of reopening. Okay, so and that's the case. And, and I'm assuming that the federal wage subsidy program, another bridging financial bridging device, would also be included in the same category as the CERB uh, with respect to your analysis of federal spending. It's not part of it. Correct. Yeah. Much of the spending, I believe, you know, the PBO last estimate was $169 billion in spending. That's really been an emergency response um, or income stabilizing, including both the wage subsidy and the CERB. Okay, so uh, let's give, give us some examples. As you say, there have been some announcements so far, Tegan, by the feds mm-hmm. with respect to program intentions, spending intentions. Now, uh, give, us a, give us an example of, of, of some uh, announcements that we may have already heard whose spending components may not have yet been activated. Right. So across provincial economies and um, with the federal government, they have hinted that there will be infrastructure spending in the, com- in the coming months. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a very typical type of stimulus that we tend to see. Um, in both the U.S. and Canadian experience in 2008-2009, infrastructure spending was used as a part of their multi-billion dollar stimulus packages in an effort to kickstart the economy. But the problem with this approach is that Infrastructure projects that are deemed shovel-ready, they still take time to plan and implement. And in fact, the evidence suggests that economic recovery has typically already taken place before the shovels hit the ground. So by the time that spending occurs, it's actually competing with the private sector for resources, which can result in increased costs and actually fewer private sector projects. So the notion that we're going to drop, uh, say, $50 million on a new bridge somewhere and it's, it's all set to go, shovels are ready, uh, really mm-hmm. isn't true because, yes, we're going to fix that bridge. Yes, we know what river it crosses. And yes, we know the construction company that's got the contract and their shovels are ready, but the bridge isn't. And how long typically between the announcement of uh, an, the awarding of an infrastructure contract, Tegan, to the implementation of that contract? one, two, or more years. Right. So, so this study didn't look specifically at infrastructure, but that was a piece of the stimulus packages that we looked at. Okay. Um, so to give a time, I'm not sure, but we do have evidence to say that that infrastructure spending was not effective. And I also just want to take the time to point out um, a really important part of this discussion, and that's the fact that um, the PBO, the the kind of budget watchdog for the federal government is projecting that the federal deficit will reach $260 billion this year. That's um, almost 12% of the size of the economy, Mm -hmm. and it would be the highest deficit on record. Um, The federal debt is also expected to reach um, $1 trillion. Again, that's huge. So there's some important context. Um, And again, these multi-billion dollar stimulus packages, if they're not going to be effective in spending that just leaves us 
with a larger deficit and ultimately larger debt than we are already facing. Politically, however, they're awfully wonderful because you get to stand out next to that broken old bridge with your uh, your your big hoe in the background and your your hard hat and all those workers around going, see, we're fixing things, we're doing things. Look at this. Look at us working with your money to make Canada better. Even though the bridge is three years away from getting fixed, all that politically, optically, it's very attractive, despite the fact that it may have low impact uh, and it may even negatively impact, that's the short-term fix that the politicians look to and that soundbite on the 6 o'clock news. Right. Well, we're not political pundits at the Fraser Institute. So as far as the political strategy, you know, that wouldn't be my area of expertise. But I would encourage, you know, provincial and federal governments to really look at the evidence that we're presenting here and um, think about how it will impact Canadians. Because the last thing that we need is further spending that not only won't work, but actually some of the evidence in this report shows that, again, it could crowd out private sector activity, which means this type of spending could actually be a detriment to the economy. Yeah, I'd like to explore that a little bit. I I have to take a break, but first, before we do that, I suppose, and this is another political point, and I know you're not a political person, and the Fraser Institute isn't a particularly political outfit, but politicians at all levels running up these gargantuan, historically unprecedented debts are going to find enormous comfort in the also historically low interest charges associated with the debt. It makes it a little easier to be cavalier about the tab you're running up. We do have, you know, low interest rates at this point in time. But the fact still remains that even prior, as you said, prior to um, the current circumstance in the recession, we've been accumulating, you know, across many provincial economies and the federal level, sizable debt which you still do have to pay interest on. Mm -hmm. And every dollar in interest that goes towards financing this debt is a dollar that isn't going towards social programs, um, that could be going towards tax relief, which is really beneficial for Canadians. So you really want to look at the opportunity cost of that interest. You know, whether it's low or not, additional debt means, you know, high interest um, payments or higher interest payments. It's Sterling Fox in for Jill on this Thursday afternoon. Here's a quote from the report from the Fraser Institute. Quote, in the coming months, as governments contemplate trying to kickstart the economy with more spending, they should recognize that evidence indicates this approach is ineffective and results in more government debt. Close quote. This from the new report from the Fraser Institute entitled, Is Fiscal Stimulus an Effective Policy Response to a Recession? One of the authors of the report, Tegan Hill, economist with the Fraser Institute, is with us this afternoon. And Tegan, the evidence that you were looking at in that quote was back to the most recent uh, financial crisis, the 08-09 recession uh, here in North America particularly, but it was worldwide as well. What important lessons were taken from that that can be applied to 2020 in Canada. Right. So we looked at the 2008 um, recession and some of the empirical work that had been done in Canada, but also with the U.S. And um, we also looked at some evidence across OECD countries and, you know, further back historical evidence. And what we find is it all kind of points back to the same conclusion that Stimulus spending is largely ineffective 
And what it actually does um, a good a good part of the time or, or within the evidence that we reviewed is it crowds out private sector activity that otherwise would have occurred. So it can actually hinder economic recovery as opposed to help it. Um, as far as lessons from this, I think it's critical to think about, particularly in the fiscal position that we're in, um, if this spending is going to be ineffective, you know, should we be pushing forward with these types of projects that have proven ineffective in the, in the past? And I think clearly the answer is, is that no, we shouldn't. Um, there are bigger problems with Canadian, the Canadian economy that existed prior to this recession. And going back to fixing some of those fundamentals, I think, would really be key. Um, so, for example, instead of spending, let's look at the regulatory environment in Canada. We know that, you know, there is more red tape than there was 10 years ago. Um, the World Bank, according to the World Bank's Ease of Doing Business report, Canada has fallen out of the top 20 countries um, as far as ease of doing business after placing eighth only a decade ago. Um, we also have, you know, sweeping tax competitiveness problems that need to be addressed. Um, and these raise important points because in the report, we actually also show that as far as stimulus, tax cuts tend to be more effective than spending. So this is just really important information that the government needs to consider before adding billions of dollars to our deficit and debt load. Interesting that you would bring up the notion of tax cuts, but I, 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 and it's always welcome. But I think, frankly, <laughs> Tegan, there are millions and millions of Canadians who look at the tab, the rising cost of even these bridge programs like the CERB and others, and know that the inevitable outcome of all of this spending is going to be a tax increase. That's the, the it's the nature of the of the point of origin, I think, uh, in terms of the government of the Liberal Party and their history of, of expensive programs. So uh, mm-hmm. you're recommending tax cuts as a stimulus. It's likely that we're going to see tax increases. And one of the reasons that I wanted to toss this at you is because the notion of a universal basic income is now being advanced by the NDP uh, to the point where the Liberals are seriously considered it. Uh, the NDP has essentially forced it on the Liberals in order to get to be on side to get the vote they needed in Parliament. It's likely mm-hmm. to be a platform plank in the next election. I know you don't want to get political, so be be, be the economist in the conversation. That sounds... Uh, it sounds like nirvana to some, I'm sure, but it, to, to many others, including me, it sounds really expensive. Right. So you raise a really important point. So when we accumulate these types of deficits and this type of debt level, you know, someone eventually has to pay for that or at a minimum has to pay for the interest costs to finance that. Um, and so you're right. We do typically see tax increases and we're going to have, you know, this issue to deal with. But once we get that deficit under control and, you know, history shows that we are able to do this in the 90s, we hit almost, you know, a currency and debt crisis. And within a couple of years, we were able to turn it around. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a different set of circumstances, but it still shows that you can target the, the deficit, figure that out. And afterwards, look to these types of issues like tax competitiveness. And, you know, in the 90s, they also did that. And, and that, that was, really and that was, and that was the Liberals under Paul Martin, no less, too, back in the 90s, wasn't it? It, it was. Yes, it was Cretchen. And, uh, yeah. So, you know, and it, 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 
the, the political party has nothing to do with it, right? So Crutchin in the 90s and then Harper with the stimulus package in 0809, it, it crosses political parties. So we really just need to look at the evidence. So let's talk a little bit about this uh, demotion we received collectively yesterday, Tegan. We had our credit rating dropped from AAA to AA by one of the many rating services. What does that mean to you? Well, I, I would say perhaps it's not surprising, um, given these, these large and, and kind of terrorizing numbers going around with, with you know, a billion uh, or sorry, almost a trillion in debt. Mm-hmm. And I think it also points to some of the concerns that people maybe don't don't think are um, are realistic or they don't think will actually ever turn, which is this type of debt and currency crisis that we saw in the 90s. Now, I'm not saying that that's going to happen today, but this is evidence that, you know, when you accumulate these types of debt levels, there are consequences. When Mr. Morneau uh, gives us what he's calling a snapshot on July 8th, there will be some accounting for what has been a massive, massive spending campaign by the government of Canada. Uh, you know, they're, they're doing what we pay them to do right now, Tegan. They're governing. They're doing what they think they should in order to keep us all afloat. Whether or not they're governing successfully will be determined by voters down the road. What are you expecting to see in that July 8th snapshot? And what do you expect them to withhold from us? Well, I'm expecting that because it's been referenced as a snapshot, we're not going to get a ton of information. Um, We've been relying heavily on estimates by the PBO and some other sources for the deficit and the debt. Um, And and I expect that perhaps we'll just have a similar update from the federal government um, with the measures that have been introduced thus far. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's going to be enough. I don't expect it will have enough detail or information for, for Canadians. So, um, you know, we're all anxiously awaiting that snapshot. But I'm at this point, I, I don't have high expectations for the level of information that we'll be getting. And are you expecting it to include some of those uh, stimulus spending items that you've referenced are kind of in the wings on the way, but nothing material yet? Might they be part of that snapshot? They might be. Um, I'm not I'm not convinced they will. That may still take, you know, a couple of weeks or some time. Um, but, you know, it's certainly a possibility that we will see more spending um, and not spending be directed to stimulus. Uh, you also talk in your report about, we're running a few seconds here, but the Canadian government's stimulus in response to the recession of 09 contributed little, if anything, to the economic turnaround. Why? Why not, I guess? So that was an analysis that looked at economic growth during that period because Canada did have a relatively quick turnaround. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did. Yeah, when we looked at the actual components that contributed to that growth, the government's spending and um, investment was, you know, inconsequential. What really drove it was the private sector and net exports. Um, So that's why it's so important to really look at the data um, and, and find and find kind of the truth in in what stimulated the economy. This report is entitled, Is Fiscal Stimulus an Effective Policy Response to a Recession? Reviewing the existing research, one of the co-authors is Tegan Hill, economist with the Fraser Institute. You can read the report in its entirety at fraserinstitute.org. Tegan Hill, thanks very much for joining us this afternoon. Thanks so much for having me.